Is Santa's workshop insured against melting ice caps? Answer me this, answer me this. Can you say to a baker, you've got really nice paps? Answer me this, answer me this. Helen and Ollie, answer me this. The world has many severe problems, so let's talk about the most trivial non-problem that anyone has ever contended with. Oh, I could write a book of those. This No, this one is honestly the least problematic problem okay. anyone has had. Has someone written in with this? No, because this you're is demeaning mine. them. This is mine. Oh, you've got your own problem. My own. I remember a few months ago on this show, I talked about why I did not want to get verified on Twitter. I do remember that conversation, yes. And I disagree with you because I'm verified and it's great. I still disagree with you, Ollie, and I still agree with myself because one day, without me having requested it, my Helen Zaltzman account and my Illusionist Show account both suddenly became verified. Wow. Yeah. You were verified against your will. Against my will. And I thought, firstly, what would the answer me this listeners think? They're going to think I'm a hypocrite. They're going to think I didn't mean it and all I wanted was that blue tick glory, (laughs) which I didn't. But I thought when I had those ticks, what if it turns me? What if I go against everything I said? But it didn't. And in fact, it was worse than I thought because as well as all the crap that you talked about, about having this like secret celebrity hangout VIP thing that I didn't want. Also, I suddenly got loads of followers who are venture capitalists who follow and are followed by a quarter of a million people. This explains why people who are verified have a lot of followers because you suddenly get followed by all the people that are just trying to get loads and loads of followers. Yeah. But it's all empty following. And, and also I was followed by a lot of bots and I had to figure out how to unverify myself. Oh, wow. No one ever asks for that. So how do you get unverified? You change your handle and then you're unverified and then you change it back. So what that's what I did. you change it to briefly? I just took a letter out. Crisis well, over. I've just been followed by Katie Price. Wow. Yeah. I don't know why. I don't know what about my career in any way appealed to her. We both have children called Harvey. That is the only thing we have in common. Probably it. We're both white. Does she follow all the white people though? No, she doesn't. There's <laughs> only about 1,700 people. Well, that could be all the people that have had a son named Harvey in the last 15 years. It's quite exciting to think that I could theoretically DM Katie Price, but I just don't know what I'd say. We have a question of Christmas from Anna, who says, This morning I went to an exhibition of nativity scenes from around the world. Hmm. That would be quite interesting, actually. I think so. Yeah. Like when you see chess sets from around the world. Yes, exactly. Oh, yeah. yeah, It's one of those things that is greater than the sum of its parts. She says, We didn't see any figures taking a shit. Oh. Remind us what she means. Uh, when I was in Spain in 2000, just before Christmas, they had whole market stalls selling different little figures, taking a shit or having a piss, and you're supposed to sneak them into your nativity scene for fun. Right. And that's different to the Catalonian shitting log, which we discussed a few years <laughs> they ago. They just love shitting things at Christmas. Okay. This is the <laughs> shitting things at Christmas section for this year. And she says, uh, we did notice that in a number of the scenes, especially the ones from Central America, the three wise men didn't bring... Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Mm -hmm. Instead, they appeared to have brought poultry. Well, Christmas, you eat a lot of poultry. It's practical. Because baby can't eat it, can it? But it's better to bring a gift for the parents, isn't it, usually? Yeah, well, the wise men may have arrived up to two years after Jesus' birth, so by that point it'd be on solids. Oh. (laughs) Carry on. Uh, She says that uh, it looked like they were bringing a cockerel, a Uh goose, and in one of the nativities, something that I can only describe as a penguin. Is that the Antarctic nativity scene? I suppose so. That'd be cool. Uh, She says, gold, frankincense and myrrh always struck me as odd gifts for a newborn anyway. Uh, So Helen, answer me this. Do the Central Americans have a different nativity story where the baby Jesus gets some birds? Well, the story is quite flexible because... In, in the Gospels, it's only in two of them for a start. It's only in Matthew and Luke. And they kind of report different things. Mm. So 
Luke talks about the shepherds, but not the wise men. And Matthew talks about the wise men, but not the shepherds. It's fair enough, isn't it? Because like, the main thing they're recording is Jesus the son born. of God was born. There was a star. Yeah, Angels. that's the big stuff. What people brought... You who know, visited? To the, to the, yeah. Do you remember who visited <laughs> after Harvey was born? No, exactly. Yeah. Who what sent the muffin can... basket? Doesn't matter. Well, how are you going to do the thank you cards if you don't know who brought the myrrh? Well, that's why you have to do it quickly. Yes, right. Yeah. And okay. I, I do remember who brought me the muffin yeah. basket. It was LBC. Then they that's fired very me. Nice. Oh, yeah. uh, not nice. Swings around about. And Matthew doesn't even mention the number of wise men. I'm going to call them wise men just for convenience. Kings, magi, whatever. Mm. Doesn't say the number. Just mentions the gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So people infer that there were three people because there are three gift could have been mm. fuckloads it could have been 20 wise men could have been one splitting the three gifts or one yeah. person that's very generous yeah, yeah absolutely mm. so there's lots of room for different interpretations which uh, is not indicated by the word gospel and there's a lot of different symbolism that is worked into it so the gifts themselves are symbolic um of jesus's life death and resurrection they're all gifts you would give to royalty they're not popular now and I know we've discussed that before, but in all yeah. seriousness, I'm surprised that like Debenhams don't do doesn't do like a flavored baby bomb. Well, yeah, no, actually, just to like a like for the for the granny who's vaguely religious and you don't know what to get her instead of a packet of Quality Street, nine ninety nine gold leaf, little jar of frankincense and some myrrh. Well, I think because myrrh was used in funerals, so that was to symbolize Jesus's death. So that'd be a bit of a morbid gift to give to a baby. But also, these were gifts for kings, and not everyone has a baby king. So sure. that's what Debenhams doesn't want to get on board with. Maybe. It knows that its core market is not people giving baby gifts to kings. I, I know you, that is true. But I, I suppose what I'm saying is they would sell an Emma Bridgewater teapot that had gold frankincense and sure. milk written on it at Christmas time. So why not yeah. sell the real thing? That's so, all I'm saying. So the gifts are symbolic, but also often the three wise men are symbolic. So sometimes they're symbolised as being the different ages of adult man. So right. 20, 40 and 60. They're sometimes symbolised being from the different parts of the world that they knew about at the time. So there's an Asian one, an African one, usually from Ethiopia, and a Middle Eastern one. I think this is probably quite a Caucasian-centric view of the nativity, because mm. otherwise the Middle Eastern one would be local, mm. right? Yeah. And then the animals have a symbolic value as well. So there's, there's pretty much always an ox and an ass. Yeah, calm yourself. The ox is a symbol of patience and strength, and... It and the donkey, I'm going to say donkey, breathed on Jesus to keep the baby warm what? and symbolising new life. It's warm there anyway, in Bethlehem. I mean, you maybe just... at night it gets a bit cold, but having an ass breathe on you is not going to help. So you usually have an ox and an ass in the scene. Sometimes also you get the sheep because you put the shepherds in. And then sometimes the wise men ride in on different animals, horses or camels or elephants. <laughs> sometimes the wise men ride in on a chicken. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? They strap one to each foot. And then sometimes there's a cat. Sometimes there's a lion. Right. Sometimes there's a dog symbolises loyalty. I read that in the Korean nativity scenes, they put a magpie in. Okay. Um, so What's maybe the significance that's... of that? Magpies like gold, don't they? They love shiny. So maybe they came after the wise man's gold. So she said that one of them had a cockerel. A cockerel is often there because uh, legend said that the cockerel crowed at midnight to announce the arrival of the Messiah and thus is a symbol of vigilance and watchfulness and of renewal and the resurrection of Christ. Wow! Imagine getting a symbol of your own resurrection just moments after you've been born. I wouldn't be ready for it. I would not, even as the parent. Yeah. It's not the news you want to hear at that moment, is no. it? I mean, it's very nice he's not just going to straightforwardly die, but I don't want to know he's going to be born again. He's just been born. She says they also brought a goose. I think maybe the goose was a large dove, because there's often a dove in the nativity scene. It represents purity and peace and the human soul of the Holy Ghost. How are you going to confuse a dove and a, and a goose? Big white birds. 
nativity scene figures tend to be small, Martin. It might be hard to make a really small dove. So you might have oh, to make so a bigger dove and it looks a bit like a goose, proportionally. Right, yeah. And the then, ne- but the next the one... Okay. Well, sometimes there's a swan and the swan is sort of a protective spirit. So she may have seen like them holding a fucking this one. zoo isn't it right. <laughs> the last... no, yeah, they don't have any cleanliness there's a baby there is this Noah's Ark or the nativity <laughs> and then you've got this really left field bird which might have been a peacock because they often have peacocks in nativities because they signify immortality and resurrection because they used to think that peacock's flesh did not decay and therefore they symbolised Christ uh, and also the peacock's eyes on its tail uh, represent the all-seeing church or the omniscient god oh so take your pick it's impressive the amount of symbolism in there actually because i think if you're not religious which i'm not and if you haven't read the new testament in great detail which i haven't i just sort of assume that some of it's a bit like a fairy story that people choose to believe rather than every single element has been i don't want to get into the theological debate about you know designed Mm -hmm. or you know and and been decreed but in any case has been chosen tailored to create symbolism yeah so to create yeah. interpretation and discussion oh they really put the effort in yeah but it's just it makes it in a way less authentic doesn't it because you're like well why is this why is a symbolic animal there like yeah, if this but... actually happened <laughs> i think what it does is it kind of covers their back so if you can't interpret it as literal history you mm. can re- interpret it as allegory mm. and therefore it works whether it's true or not mm. so she might have seen a peacock a peacock, um, a cockerel, and a dove. A pe- or right, swan. So, but probably not a penguin. Probably not a penguin, unless she saw the Korean one with the magpie, which you, is also just, a black and white bird. You just said penguin. I oh, know, I've been pressured into it. Well done. Don't patronise me. I'm sorry, I don't mean to celebrate no. your conformity. but Get fucked. It's, uh, <laughs> I'm impressed. Um, I've never heard you say it before. I've also had a nice look at different countries' nativity sets on Google Images, and some of them are pretty cool, but they're also playing around with the convention. So the Arctic one has an igloo and a polar bear. A Zululand one had zebras and giraffes. Hmm. So there's room for fun alongside the interpretive bird language symbolism thing that um, they might be playing with. I'll tell you what, it makes the school nativity costumes a bit more fun, doesn't it? Well, if you, you know, can turn up as a peacock. Yeah, exactly. Just recycle mm-hmm. your Halloween costume, basically. You know, why are you dressed as Freddy Krueger? Well, it's an interpretation. <laughs> it's an interpretation of the slaughter of the innocents. <laughs> Actually, that works. It does, this shit's yeah. easy. <laughs> Here's a question from Katie, who says, Ollie, answer me this. What is this new old-fashioned way that people are dancing in, <laughs> as mentioned in the lyrics of Jingle Bell Rock? What an earth kind of dancing are they talking about? It sounds so specific and great. That's not Jingle Bell Rock. No, that's Rocking uh, Around the Christmas Tree. Yeah. yeah. I very can see similar. how they are very similar. You can mm. easily conflate them if you start Rocking singing around one. around the Christmas tree. The da, Christmas da, da, party da, da, hop. Da. That's the Jingle Bell Rock. Yeah, I suppose you kind of can. But anyway, rocking around the Christmas tree. That's what she means, isn't it? New old-fashioned. Is it just that everything new at some point becomes old-fashioned, which means the current old-fashioned thing might be the new old-fashioned thing? You know, like there's a new retro trend rather than one of the old retro trends. Well, I think it's a rock and roll song, isn't it? So isn't it an older person saying like, oh, these kids think they invented rock and roll, but we were doing this years ago? No. Huh. It isn't what? that, because it was sung by Brenda Lee, and she was 13 in 1957. Whoa. <laughs> so it definitely oh. isn't an older person. But did she write it? She didn't write it. Yeah, 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 probably no. an old white guy. Sure, but I still don't think it was... I, I think the opposite, actually. Mm-hmm. I think what it's saying is, this is a Christmas song. We know it's a Christmas song, and Christmas is a time full of nostalgia and looking back in history. And in fact, the lyrics have sentimentality in them, don't they? You will get a sentimental, sentimental feeling when you hear. So mm. it's it's signposting 
we're doing a bit of a retro hit thing here. We're doing a Christmas song. But, hey kids, we're teenagers. We're doing it rock style Oh, I see, yeah, yeah. So it's the new old-fashioned way. So we're doing a, okay. a new take on an old-fashioned trend. So we're flipping the tables on Christmas. We're cooler than Bing Crosby. That's basically what she means. Yeah. Whereas yeah. I don't associate Christmas with dancing. I think if the lyrics were truthful, it would be... Everyone sitting very full and <laughs> farting all the day. <laughs> I don't dance on Christmas Day, it's true. You're usually covering for someone's radio show on Christmas Day. (laughs) I'm usually doing a phone-in about you, Kip. (laughs) But I don't think you have to relate to every part of the lyric. No, because there's the pumpkin pie lyric as well, and that's not a comestible Britsy Christmas, but it's not a British song, I admit. And yet that has not stopped its progress in this country. Well, I think Mm. because uh, Mel Smith and Kim Wilde's cover. That's that's a banger. Yeah. It's lovely. Uh, You're being ironic. Oh, it's, a fun, it's a really fun song. It's, it's shit, isn't it? Let's be <laughs> no, honest. it's not worse than the original. It is worse than the original. It's not worse than the original. I, I don't think anyone's topped the Brenda Lee version. Can we do, a, can we do like a no, Twitter can I just, poll on I just this? for the record, no. no one's topped the Brenda Lee version of Rock Around the Christmas Tree. I mean, you can. You, I get what you're doing. You're sort of ironising and like, oh, Mel and Kim, that was funny. It's a novel- it was shit. It's a novelty song. No, it was shit. Yeah, it's a no- it was shit in the first place. Okay, it's a novelty the things song, are not mutually really. exclusive. You're right. It was both a novelty song and it was shit, but guys, it was shit. That's guys, the overriding thing. It's it was Christmas. Shit. Please don't fight. <laughs> this is like the video. All right, have it. Put it to the <laughs> listeners. Let's find out what they think. Definitive version. Brenda Lee, <laughs> Mel Smith and Kim Wilde. I'm sure anyone- Mel Smith is a comic titan. Anyone listening to this legitimate pop under twenty five, we're just like having. Oh god, we're yeah. like choosing like, between Gladstone and Israel. Like, <laughs> it was probably the song that was playing while you were being born. <laughs> I've got a question. Email your question. Here's a question from Tom in Derby who says, Helen, answer me this. How and when did they film Home Alone 2's New York street scenes? In the streets of New York. Uh, In Elf and Love Actually, none of the cast appear in establishing shots so that they can film the cast in the summer and insert Christmas shots. Home Alone 2, however, literally shows Macaulay at Rockefeller. Was this a giant set or did they film a full year in advance? Well, they really filmed it. I don't think it was a full year in advance. I couldn't get the exact dates of when they filmed the Rockefeller Centre, but I know that the pigeon attack sequence, not seen Home Alone 2, um, but... <laughs> well, if you haven't seen it, it's spoiler. the last hour of the film. <laughs> Everyone it's gets the birds. Everyone gets mauled by pigeons. It's the bit where Macaulay Culkin <laughs> plays Tippy Hedren. It's harrowing. Anyway, the pigeon attack sequence, whatever that is, was yeah. filmed on March 25th, 1992, and the film was released in November 1992, so I'm assuming... The, the film was mostly filmed in early 1992. Yes, I think that's right. So, I mean, I have seen the film. The pigeon attack sequence is in Central Park. Right, so okay. all they would have had to have done is put some fake snow down. Well, they they got a load of fake snow ready and then there was a blizzard. So oh. they wasted oh, all that money. Wow. What are you going to do? So I imagine, yes, that if they were filming Central Park in March, then yeah. why wouldn't they be filming Macaulay at Rockefeller Centre the Christmas before? Yeah. Also, he ain't getting any younger. Oh, so you've got to rush it out before he hits puberty. You know, and they'd need that mm. shot for the publicity as well. Get him looking as childish as possible. And uh, it was so cold, in fact, that some of the cameras froze during production. Good fact. Thank you. Someone's been on IMDb. They have. There's a lot of trivia about Home Alone too. I think, secretly, it might be a better film than Home Alone. Oh. Obviously, 
Home Alone's better as a complete piece of entertainment because Home Alone 2 stretches plausibility even in the sort of comic book way it's framed. It's got a bigger landscape upon which to do it as well. Yeah, well, it just wouldn't, you just wouldn't lose your eight-year-old child twice. It just wouldn't happen. Maybe they really just wanted to lose him. <laughs> the subplot is they actually wanted him dead. Um, but in many ways it's better because unlike with most films when there's a sequel and the budget's bigger and the ambition is bigger and it loses some of its integrity Mm. with home alone because the budget's bigger the slapstick's better like you know they don't just fall through a building they fall off a skyscraper do you know what i mean it's like big and the skyscraper is the rockefeller center i actually i've made that up but it's that kind of thing i see and and it's it's pretty full like the the bit you watch home alone four and i don't mean the film home alone four which is obviously pants i mean the the reason you watch home alone four i think they made six is it when macaulay culkin is is an adult doesn't want to be an actor anymore he's (laughs) like i'm home alone and it's fine i don't need a parent or guardian he has wisely managed to stay out of all of the remakes even like a nostalgic cameo so well done him he's got his band the reason you watch home alone is for the slapstick sequence and i'd argue that's better in home alone too plus Mm -hmm. tim curry's in it is he? Oh, yeah. that's nice. And it's good Tim Curry, not like weird family film Tim Curry. The only thing that's a bit suspect about it yeah. is, is they have all the same um, ingredients as the plot in the first one, which is fine when it comes to the burglars because that's what you want. Yeah. But the pigeon thing... Who's getting attacked by pigeons? So he sort of does, but he doesn't really. Macaulay? Kind of, yeah, sort of. Does he outrun them? Basically, there's a weird pigeon lady. Uh... She, see, you've already got it, right? So she's in Central Park. She's exactly like the weird snow shoveling guy in the first one. Okay. And so it's exactly the same moral. She saves his bacon at the end of the film. She turns out to be a really good woman who's had a really hard life and now she's homeless. But it's like, we've seen that. I mean, like, if you're going to learn anything from the first experience of being home alone and not judging a book by its cover, then don't think that the scary woman is scary. What does the weird snow shovel guy do in the first one? He saves the day with his snow shovel. I don't remember the film, but that seems like quite a stretch to save the day with it with a snow shovel but the point is learn your fucking lesson don't judge yes. by appearances that's yeah. the, that is the only moral well, of maybe, the first maybe one. the lesson is eight year olds just don't don't learn that quickly they need yeah. a couple of repetitions they need, they need a message to reinforced hammer it yeah. into yeah. them it's like in pitch perfect where there's a scene where someone pukes and then everyone else pukes and falls over in the puke mm. and then the second one uh there's like mass <laughs> diarrhea what are they going to do in the third one? Like, everyone's going to drown in their own piss? Both at know. once. Both at once. That was effectively what happened in American Pie, I think. Oh. Like, American Pie, boy fucks a pie. American Pie 2, boy gets caught masturbating publicly. Up an apple tree? Yeah, something. Yes, right. <laughs> it was basically that. Yes, I've heard apple trees are just like a woman's fudge. And then American Pie 3, boy fucks a pie but gets caught publicly and his pubes go breaks. on the cake. <laughs> um, I was just like, that wouldn't happen. It's just again, even within its own universe, that stretches plausibility. But you're assuming that people are supposed to learn, and you're not assuming that they're serial offenders. Sure, yeah, I guess that's it. Isn't Can it? people change? That's what all these films are asking. <laughs> Evidently not. Evidently, people not. are irredeemable. I know that my baby is the absolute best. I put Facebook photos up daily and my friends are impressed. Apart from ones who block me because they're jealous. Because their babies are so ugly. Well, why not build a gallery of your kid on Squarespace with special pages for its cute feet and cute hands and cute face so my Facebook feed won't have your kid all over the place. He looks like a scrotum. Thank you, Squarespace, for sponsoring this episode of Answer Me This. This year of Answer Me This, indeed. You have really kept this boat afloat. Uh, Squarespace are a constant companion to podcasts and to you listeners if mm. you want to design and host a website. Yeah, but if designing you? a website sounds a bit like, oh, I don't want to do that, don't, don't know, know how, how to do, do it. That. Oh, I'm scared. Don't be Leave scared. Leave me alone. Don't Stop scared. telling me to design things. I'm just a guy who runs a cafe. 
That's fine. Is your menu online? Is it? Is it? Get it online. It's so easy with Squarespace. It's so easy. They make you feel like a designer, even though you're still technically useless. You're still a barista. (laughs) All you're doing is clicking. That's all you're doing. Yeah. You don't even have to photocopy your menu and run it through a special laminator to get it on Squarespace. (laughs) Clip art is not necessary. They have templates so you can put your menu in there. Yeah. Not a problem. Not a problem. Or if you want to do a podcast or have a portfolio up of your art. Yeah. Or sell the trinkets that you make the Christmas ornaments you make out of your own shed hair. Or have a music page, palebirdmusic.com. And whatever you choose to build, you get a two-week free trial by going to squarespace.com. Yes, and then if you uh, want to purchase a website or domain, then you get a 10% discount if you use the code ANSWER. Here's a question from Levi in Edmonton, Canada, who says, Ollie, answer me this. Why is it that some people, like my mother, despise photos of family members eating, while others, like my father, will take countless photos at extended family dinners and seem to think they're good portraits? Should I avoid said photos at my own gatherings? Well, uh, Do you have to, to like, make hard and fast rules about this, Levi? To, to answer your first question, I think it might be that your mother despises photos of your family members eating because that's all your father incessantly takes. I mean, if that's his right. favourite kind of portrait, you would hate it, wouldn't you? I was thinking it could be a generational thing because my grandmother had a lot of eating rules that I think people who were younger than her didn't and I think she would have found photos of people eating to be a bit vulgar. Yes. But then Levi's father, who presumably is... Of at least of a generation above Levi, mm. as is his mother, mm. seems comfortable with it. What were her eating rules? Oh, don't eat it in the street for a start. I think yeah. that was a pretty common one. That's a common one that that's our generation that ruined that. Don't talk with your mouth full. Always. Elbows on the table, probably. Was she into that? Yeah, I think it probably depend on the kind of food. Finger sandwiches, fine. But also taking a picture back in her day would was, have involved, yeah. you know. Expense. <laughs> exactly. Expense, set up a flash gun. No one looks good while eating, so save the picture until another time. Ed Miliband bacon sandwich, I think you're yeah. forgetting about. But I feel like I've got this sort of strong visual of what these pictures are like in my mind. And when it's a table full of people, you can't see everyone because someone is always stretching to let someone else interview and thus inadvertently blocking the face of someone else. Mm. Mm. You don't get a good view of anybody. I suppose you do get the atmosphere of the scene. It depends. I mean, we're at that time of year now where I think about, you know, the festive portraits. And aside from three-year-olds opening Christmas presents with delight across their faces, I think my favourite Christmas pictures are the ones of the whole family around the table. There's something... You know, well, so symbolic the, about that. It's all the details that you, at the time, you complete. I mean, it's all, all photos, I think. It's the things that you take for granted and don't care about at the time. And then yeah. you look back and go, well, that dress that my yeah. grandmother wore, that, I used to wear that all the time. And you just, you know, those are the things that... Yeah. Well, that's you right. Martin used to look like a gothic female. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I come from a family where we don't really have photos of family occasions of any kind. Is that because your dad turned them into sculptures instead? No, that would have taken... <laughs> he might still be working on them, but, but no. Somewhere in his cupboard, there's one of young Hullins Altsman reaching for a gherkin. I think we just didn't take pictures of people. And even though now we have uh, smartphones, we still don't take pictures of the family having meals. My favourite family portraits of those, because my family are very different and took pictures all the time of us mm. eating... Uh, were my grandfather's, my mother's father's photos, which he double exposed. Uh, So it was half of a skiing holiday to Banff Uh and half of uh, people eating in Stanmore. Wow. Uh, So you'd have like my aunt sitting in the garden tucking into a cucumber sandwich in June and behind her a bloke (laughs) on skis waiting to get to go for the winter. (laughs) Did he do it deliberately? No, no, no. As it wasn't like an art project? No, but some of them were spectacular. There was one, Mm. in fact, where where my grandfather and grandmother are standing in their front room of their masonette in Stanmore and out the window is Whistler Mountain. I mean, it's extraordinary. It's lined up perfectly so it looks like the view. (laughs) So Levi, I think maybe you should take photos, but think of an imaginary 
imaginative way to splice them with something else. <laughs> You're in Canada already, so you could splice them with photos of Banff easier than some other people could. Do you know, I think the thing that's happened actually recently is that people have started taking pictures of their food because that trends yes. better on social media than the people eating the food. Mm. And that's a shame, isn't it? You know, our and grandchildren will look back and all they'll see is... Uh, eggs Benedict. Pulled pork, yeah. Pulled pork, not, not who ate the pulled pork. But then no one looks good eating, so you are sparing people that displeasure. Mm. But then refried beans don't look good in any context of people no, insisting taking pictures of those. That looks like a filled nappy. Uh, here's another question of food. It's from Betty in London who says, I'm currently eating some dates. Congratulations. Oh, yeah, that's brilliant, isn't it? It's the small things sometimes. That this is like the happy. podcast version of a food photo. <laughs> These dates are, now I don't even know how to pronounce it, Deglay Noir. Is that it? Deglay Noir? It could be. Deglay Noir. I don't know. My French isn't great. I've got a it's D. It's spelled Deglet. Yeah, Deglet Noir. Yeah. Um, they are not the posher medjool variety. Uh, on the side of the packet, they are described as, quote, glove box Deglet Noir dates. The packaging also states that they should be kept refrigerated, so really? I clearly can't keep them in my glove box for on the move day and snacking. <laughs> How many people keep gloves in their glove box now, anyway? Apart from killers. I suppose the issue is that cars used to be very, very cold, Absolutely. whereas now they heat up quicker. Mm. And also they have windows and roofs. Yeah, so you don't need <laughs> special gloves for driving in the way that you used to. And glove storage. I remember my dad having driving gloves and a steering wheel cover when I was a kid. Yeah, oh, but, wow. But he, was that's really double, he was really double-bagging that. Was the steering wheel cover to keep your hands warm as well. I always assume both were about grip rather than comfort. Anyway, Betty says, Helen, answer me this. Why is there a reference to glove boxes on dates? Well, I've really tried harder than you'll ever truly know, listeners, the number of 60-page PDFs about the date industry that I ploughed through to try to find out why this particular kind of date is packed in this long slender box that is called a glove box Mm -hmm. date and I mean, is it that it fits in a car glove box? I'm not sure it's to do with car glove boxes at all, actually. Is it roughly the same size as a box you would put a pair of gloves in? I think that's what it is. I think this kind of packing originated in Marseille, where I think they're also called boîte marseillaise rather than glove boxes, boîte de gant. Um, and I think it was just these wooden boxes as they were packaged in then, now more likely plastic. Look like the boxes gloves used to come in. So what was the distinction, the fact that they've got sort of bevelled... They're long and slender, and the other dates came in square and round boxes. I don't actually know what a glove box looks like. Well, because you don't wear gloves, you don't buy gloves, and you don't keep gloves. You're not a fancy lady of the 1920s, I mean, where do you keep your gloves, Mike? I just have a pair that are in each coat that I have. Yeah, lucky dip, really, when I put the coat on, which pair of gloves are in there. Mine are in with my scarves. Hi, Helen, Ollie, and Martin, the sound man. Um, This is Kate from Bristol. As a parent to a toddler, I spend a lot of time making and playing with Play-Doh. So answer me this. Was Play-Doh invented by a company, and then I make it myself? Was it something that people were always making at home and then a company came up with branding and sell it in shops? Well, Kate, uh, you'll be pleased to know that Play-Doh started life as a product from a soap company called Kutol. Why will she be pleased to know that? And it was originally manufactured not as a toy, but to clean coal off of wallpaper. That's ah. what you're letting your children play with. So that's great if you've given them a lump of coal to play with at Christmas. <laughs> you can then uh, get them to clean up afterwards under the guise of fun. Uh, but crucially, it's not toxic. Don't worry, it's fine. Um, It is now a toy. I think there's a lot of rules about how children's toys have to be edible, even if you're not supposed to eat them. Yeah, I always wondered about that, because clearly, you know, if if there are any three-year-olds listening, don't eat your Play-Doh. But Mm. you probably could, couldn't you? You you could probably get away with eating, like, a good few mouthfuls before anything happened. I think it's pretty much inert, isn't it? You just poop it out the other end. Maybe it get a bit mixed in with your regular vegetable matter. I mean, that's kind of amazing, isn't it? 
Or to have a toad with luminescent trunks in it. Well, that too. But the fact (laughs) that you can manufacture a children's toy that is neon-coloured. Yeah. And, you know, passed from child to child in all their fecal hand matter. And nonetheless, actually, probably wouldn't kill them if they ate it. But this Play-Doh, I suppose it's like a flexible eraser then. You rub it against the wall to get the coal dust off. Back in, what was it, the 1930s, you said? Uh, Yes. Um, And then washable vinyl wallpaper came out, and suddenly their whole business went to fuck town. Oh, no! Um, But it's okay, because the parent company, although they were very vulnerable at that stage of evolution, uh, luckily within the company, the, the wife of one of the employees was a nursery school teacher. And she, as I suppose you did back then... Um, because perhaps they didn't have many toys in the nursery, had been bringing in the uh, wallpaper cleaning product to her nursery class and allowing the children to play with it. And she said, they love it. You should market this as a toy. So it's like she was doing a consumer test? Yes, exactly. Market research without being paid for that, yeah. Um, So she persuaded the the guys who were running the company to market it as a toy, and she came up with the name Play-Doh. And that's D-O-H, isn't it? Yeah, which I've never really understood why, but... I would assume it's so that, yeah, you can copyright it, whereas the word dough is more public domain. And also more difficult for children to spell. Apparently, the the, the guys who invented it when it was um, designed for cleaning coal off wallpaper wanted to call the product Rainbow Modelling Compound. That's not fun. Compound's not not a fun word. Certainly less fun. I mean, it has got rainbow in it, which is fun. Yeah, but it starts off fun and gets less fun so by the end of the phrase you don't want to play with it anymore exactly mm. anyway by 1958 they'd achieved three million dollars worth of sales been stocked in macy's advertised on tv rest is history da 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 da, da. i was wondering uh-huh. why is it that this creative toy which appeals to children's imagination oh. and has legacy going back decades why has that not been made into a hipster movie oh like Lego? no you're right that could be done but answer is it is being done uh, oh uh paul feig is directing no, it what? Saying, or at least in the wikipedia article has said that he might if the money's right if, exactly well i just hope they remain true to the spirit of the toy because if you actually buy play-doh now for your kids um if you get the premium pots which cost about 40 quid for the latest wow. sort of weird platform that they sit on to shape them on uh-huh. you're supposed to take a picture on your smartphone and then it's, it's quite cool i suppose It's just a bit sad that this is how all toys have to go now. You take a picture on your smartphone and then your creation plays in a video game app. That's cool. Yeah. Kind of. So like an augmented reality kind of thing. Yeah, but then your kids are just playing with their phones and not with a Play-Doh. But Mm. I I bet that Kate's right that people were making dough for their kids to play with before the Play-Doh cola razor exists. It's, it's just flour, water and oil and then varying degrees of salt or, or colouring. Go on, give us a recipe then. All right, here's a recipe. I think I've got it off the BBC website. Eight tablespoons of plain flour, two tablespoons of table salt, 60 millilitres of warm water, food colouring, one tablespoon of vegetable oil. Mix the flour and salt in a bowl, mix together the water and food colouring and oil separately and then mix them together with a spoon and knead. The thing is... Keep it in the fridge for you, freshness. You know when you make hummus at home? Yep. It lasts two days, right? Like, well, first day, quite much, nice. Not as much preservative in it. Yeah, exactly. Second day, it just, like, sticks to the bowl and goes crusty. Yeah. And, like, mm. there's a layer of oil on the top. And that's when I put cling film on it and put it at the back of the fridge. Yeah. Wouldn't Play-Doh go like that? Like, homemade Play-Doh. It's not going to be like the stuff you buy in the shop that lasts for two years. That's going to last for a day. And well, then it's going to stink. There are different recipes somewhere you cook it. And I think maybe the cooking ones last a bit longer. <laughs> I think my favourite Play-Doh related thing was the controversy that it attracted in Christmas 2014. Uh, when the company that makes Play-Doh, which is now Hasbro, uh, had to offer to replace a part. Uh, it was the Play-Doh cake mountain extruder tool uh, because it looked <laughs> mm, exactly extruder. like a cock. 
Wow. It, it looks it's extraordinary. You have to Google it. Google it now. Play-Doh Cake Mountain Extruder Tool. It's Play-Doh it looks like a veiny circumcised cock with a head that the Play-Doh comes out of at the top. It's even like got sort of spirals around it like it's a novelty amazing. condom. Yes, exactly. And uh, Isn't that amazing? How did that get manufactured and no one noticed? It's got a kind of pearlescent frenulum. You know, even if it's like made in China and, you know, culture is different, it looks like a cock, doesn't it? Under any It does look like a cock. Oh wow. Yeah. And there's a sort of a syringe mechanism going on as well. Want to make it? Oh, it's, out the it's end. got little balls. It, it does. It looks like a, a dildo, doesn't it? Yeah. Now you want to watch the Play-Doh movie. But it's got a weird sort of star-shaped head, so it's not quite anatomically accurate. Yeah, well, they weren't aiming to make an anatomically <laughs> accurate penis, were they? How many social networks are you on? Friendster, path you pawn, MySpace, Ping, and Google Buzz. If you want to be our pal, go to this URL: Facebook.com/slash/AnswerMeThis or Twitter.com/slash/HelenAndDolly. But please don't follow us in real life. Thanks very much to First Direct for sponsoring this episode of Answer Me This. Yeah, so if you bank with them, then remember next time you use your First Direct debit card or credit card to buy yourself a sandwich. You'd be like, those guys, sponsoring podcasts, pretty cool, eh? Those guys, they not only helped me buy this sandwich, which is delicious. I assume you've got great taste in sandwiches. They helped us buy sandwiches. (laughs) Exactly. They also support the same podcast that I like. Yes. Well done, them. And they have the number one customer service in the UK. They do, yeah. They won an award. Which is best brand and money-saving experts, best bank for customer service? That is a good effort. Wouldn't argue with a money-saving expert. That guy's great. See him on Lorraine. I'm like, yes, I'm going to switch my gas account now. <laughs> At firstdirect.com and also on the phone, uh, you can get customer support 24-7. So you can call them anytime, day or night, and they will help you if you lose your credit card. What are you just thinking? How can I fiddle things around so that uh, my money is better protected? Benefiting me. Benefiting me more. Tell me all about a cash ISA. That's what I want to talk about at three in the morning. Ooh, They'll help yeah. you with that. Uh, Anyway, First Direct are sponsoring questions of finance on the show. Uh, and this episode, they have asked us this. Helen, are you ready? Yeah. With Christmas approaching, Helen, answer me this. Does giving actually make you feel better? Um, yes. Uh, it, it makes me feel richer for a start. I think because for so many years I didn't have any money that being able to give money away really reinforced to me that I had some money now. Hmm. But last year in particular, the bit between Brexit and the election of Donald Trump I found rather stressful and joyless. Sure. And when I was unable to sleep because of political misery, I would often just give away quite significant amounts of money to charity. Mm. I think as a way of channeling my anxiety into something that wasn't entirely useless. It's interesting. You look at the studies on this, and there have been a few that show that People who spend money on others mm-hmm. identify as happier than people who spend more on themselves. Yeah, I suppose because when you're spending money on yourself, you might be trying to buy happiness. You may have started off in a more unhappy state than the other people anyway. Well, possibly, but it could just be that if you don't feel you need to buy stuff for yourself, then you yeah. probably are happier anyway. Yeah, maybe you know, that whereas is Whereas people who buy lots of things for themselves, they feel they need that to make up the hole in their life that yeah. they're not feeling happy. Yeah. You know, this isn't necessarily about your income level. But the other it's thing, about what you need. The other thing that I would do when I was trying to deal with this anxious, miserable insomnia was spend a lot of time on the internet looking at uh, different luggage 
and packing cubes. <laughs> and I think it was a way to think I could create order in mm. a, a terrifying, uncontrollable world. And then I was like, but if you're thinking of buying a 400 quid suitcase, then you can give a load of money to charity. Yeah, but if you then give the money to charity, you can't afford the 400 pound suitcase. So who needs a 400 quid suitcase? Didn't buy one, gave the money away. Right. Have you got a good suitcase now? Yeah, but it was like 100 quid. Okay, good. All yeah. right. So long as you're happy. I mean, I Done. would want the 400 pound suitcase, I'm being honest. Yeah, but I suppose it was my inclination to spend something to make myself feel better and i was like no what no i'll give it to the trussell trust do you ask each other what you want for christmas we don't we haven't done gifts do for christmas or birthday no but do you do a gesture of something like a, what a finger up or something like that <laughs> <laughs> no i don't know i just mean um do you say happy christmas and kiss each other on christmas day yes right okay fine we say that every day fine well I <laughs> every day is like christmas when you're with Helen. <laughs> what there's a family argument there's a family you argument somebody's drunk someone's asleep I mean, my wife asked me this morning what I want for Christmas, and I wasn't prepared for the question, but I knew what the answer was. I just thought, well, I can't tell her the real answer. Is it a telescope? No, it's a it's a Bose multi-rim sound system. But, I, you know, uh, right. I feel like, although it's true that by its very definition, that's a series of different individual speakers that link together, so she could afford to buy me one or two. Yeah. She's not going to be buying me the whole set, so then it becomes like a crowdfunded Christmas present. I'd be like, yeah. you get me the one for the bathroom, mum can get me the one for the sitting room. And although that's sensible and practical, it's not very romantic, and I acknowledge yeah. not very personal, even mm. though it is actually what I personally want. So well, I said, oh, yeah. I don't know. Let me have a think. Helen, I and think... I'll probably say, a sweater. And here's another question of Charity from Shell, mm-hmm. who says, now it's December, the radio is wall-to-wall Christmas songs. It is. In heavy rotation is the Band-Aid song, Feed the World. Which I'm happy about, and you're probably not. I hate it. Yeah. I think we've discussed this before. I love that yeah. song. It's awful. I think it's a great piece of pop songwriting. I think it's a bad piece of pop songwriting. No, I think, look, it's... I think it's a mediocre piece of pop songwriting. <laughs> all right, well, we're well, representing anyway, all the views. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what we think about it. It's not what Shell is asking. Is it good? Shell right. is saying, this song was written 30 years ago for a charity. Yes. Ollie, answer me this. Mm. Does that charity still exist? If not, where does the money go from the song being played? Well, it does still exist, sort of, but it's a trust, not a charity. Right. So, What's the, the dif- difference? The difference is that the Band-Aid Trust doesn't have a building or an employee. It's basically just a bank account, and then once a year they divvy up the money now between various different charities that are doing the kind of work that they were doing oh. in the first place. So it goes to organisations like Oxfam and WaterAid now and gets mm. split between different charities so that they're not paying to duplicate administrative costs that those charities are already paying for. It still supports Ethiopia, Sudan, Uganda, Eritrea, Somalia, and Nigeria. Uh, and I've just been looking through their accounts. Thanks for the question, well, Shell. <laughs> this is a fun half an hour Merry on the Charities Commission website. How can you look at their accounts? Because their charities all public. You can see how much they've made. And last year they took in about £700,000. So I, I'm guessing that since there isn't any mainstream fundraising that they're doing at the moment, i.e. they haven't done a Band-Aid 34 yet, or whatever it is. Um, <laughs> so that's it's just from that single? It must just be from royalties, mustn't it? Mm. Yeah, or, or from sales of the DVD and stuff. Yeah, there's, was there an album from the live show? I don't know if there's an album, but there's a DVD, and you know, if ever a clip of the concert gets shown on television, presumably you they have get to pay, because yeah, it's yeah. charity. So you know, no one's going to skimp on paying that. So yeah, they, they still are making money every year. And the government waives the VAT on that as well, which is oh, something uh. that um, at the time Bob Geldof very publicly challenged Margaret Thatcher to do. Hmm. To begin with, they, the government was taking that. I think it was the first song that the government ever waived VAT on. 
And, wow. and now, like any charity single, it's just taken as a given that you won't yeah. get charged VAT. So I've often wondered how much a charity single actually makes. And the first one did legitimately raise a lot of money, right? £150 was... million. Pounds. Wow! Yeah, which was a lot in 1985. And they're still making almost a million pounds a year, even today. Yeah, although that's from the subsequent versions as well. Although I can't imagine the Pete Waterman version <laughs> is contributing much. <laughs> shame on you, Ollie. Doesn't get much airplay these days, does it? Which is a shame because it's got big fun in it. <laughs> Who is the least credible artist, do you think, in a Band-Aid single? Um, there have been four now. Wow, I'd have to look at the yeah, list. Yeah, I mean, I, I, seem to I mean I'm going to go right out there and say Technotronic, but I mean, you can try and beat me if you like. I seem to remember Midjour being part of the first one, and he was, he was one of, of the he founders. He was big at the time, but like, who knows who he is now? Everyone knows who like, Barry and George Michael are, but, sure. and, you know, Bono. Well, I guess, as it turned out, Ultravox were more of a pop act than a lasting legacy act. But, yeah. I mean, he did write that song, which, as I say, I think is quite good. I know mm. it's a bit patronising and flawed. I, I know it does sometimes snow in Africa, and Africa is a continent, not a country. Uh, and some people there are Christian, <laughs> and they celebrate Christmas in January. I know all of that, but still, I think it's, uh, it is catchy, and I never turn it off. Well, both Beddingfields were in the 2004 one. Yes, and Kat Dealey, she's rarely providing vocals, is she? She's she hosting the vocal experience. Yeah, no, I think that was because Ant and Decker are in it as well, aren't they? Yes. I think that must have been some tie-in with their TV show of the 2004, time. 2004, are they still performing together? Dido performed separately from a studio in Melbourne. Why not? I think you've really got to turn up for this because you've got to be in the big group photo. Yeah, no, but that Robbie Williams was the first to mess with that, wasn't he? Because in the first one, Boy mm. George flew in from the States and got there at six o'clock, famously, after everyone else had recorded See? their bit. Put in the effort. Put in the effort. Whereas Robbie mm. did his down the line. I guess technology makes that possible now, but it's just not quite the same, is it? A charity single where everyone Skyped in a line. Uh, it sold over three million copies uh, the first uh, time round, which was later beaten by um, the Princess Diana Candle in the Wind Tribute right. as the biggest selling single. But do you know which single it beat? What was the previous record? Do you record know of? which single it beat? Bamian Rhapsody? No, that's no, a good guess. It's too, too late for that. It's less credible than that. Okay. I guess it would be something like Take On Me. No. 1984, the first one came out. Yeah, that sounds so about right. what was the biggest song before Biggest song of all time. There's no one quite before like that. Grandma. <laughs> it was the biggest song of all time before that. The biggest selling signal in the UK. Is yeah. it Michael Jackson? No, it's something that you just, I mean, the artist is very well known, but the song really, like, no one's favourite. Is it like a Silla Black song or something? You're, you're close by association, but no. For chorus. You're really close now. It is McCartney. Is it Live Wings? Yeah. It's Mar- Mull of Kintyre. Yeah. Oh Mull of Kintyre was the biggest selling song before Band-Aid. I can't even uh. picture that song. Yeah. Isn't that astonishing? Yeah. Because like Band-Aid, you know, as Shell points out, is still on the radio every year. Mm. Albeit it's a Christmas song, so it's got that built in. Mull of Kintyre. I mean, I work for magic. I've never heard that. <laughs> it's just never on, is it? I think though Band-Aid would also get played and played and played year on year because people feel virtuous playing it. Whereas some of the more rubbish songs, I think they feel okay with slipping them out of rotation. I think based on solely musical merits... This one wouldn't be an A-list Christmas song. but Look, I'm prepared to go that far. But if Flying Pickets was also a charity single, that would get the airplay it deserves. If Mariah Carey was a Christmas charity single, <laughs> that How song that would never more? ever be on the yeah. radio. It would be played twice at the same time. It would be the only song in the world. It would be like a cult. It would be like, <laughs> we're living in 1984 and everyone every day has to hear All I Want for Christmas is You twice. That is how Mariah lives. <laughs> she seems okay with it. It does make you think though, doesn't it? If Band-Aid, on an annual basis, is making £700,000, Mariah Carey is probably making a similar amount, and she doesn't oh. have to give it to charity. 
Mm. She has to pay a vet here, though. She does. Yes, that's true. I mean, listen, in the UK. Well, yeah. we've really cut her down to size. Sales which means by 20%. <laughs> I thought that I would never love again. Oh no! I went on to the internet and then. What then? I found a place where all true love lasts. Hooray! At www.answerminuspodcast.com. Here's a question from Catherine from Boston. She says, Ollie, answer me this. If you're a guest at someone's home for multiple days, is it okay to masturbate in private at some point during your stay? Or is it unacceptable? Additionally, how many days into your visit does it become acceptable? It's not good etiquette. If you're there for one night, you should control yourself. And if what you're... if you're really horny? She no, says multiple days. She does. I'm addressing her scale. Okay. If Equally, if you're there for a whole year, it's inevitable. So it is right to say, isn't it, that there therefore must be an unspoken scale at work. There is therefore a time at which it's no longer generally considered to be unacceptable. And I personally would probably put that figure at about five days. I was going to say 24 hours. (laughs) Really? Day two? Yeah, sure. Well, it depends, doesn't it? I mean... On what? Well, if you've prepared adequately, you you should go into a guest situation without pent-up sexual desires. You like to have a wank on the bus on the way there, just in case. On the doorstep while you're waiting for (laughs) someone to answer the door. (laughs) But not through the letterbox. Yes, exactly. (laughs) You've learned the hard way. Because that technically would be in their home and that's not allowed. Sure. You should be able to prepare for that sort of eventuality. Helen, you've often had guests staying in your home. I don't think about how much they're wanking in there into my yarn collection. I don't mind. I'm asking now. I'll I'll tell you how I played it at your house. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Oh, no. I Never on the sofa. Never. I occasionally Great. slept on the sofa. Well, okay. Is that because you felt like you were in a public place we could walk in, even though you would be able to hear us coming so we'd have to come up the stairs? I don't even like to masturbate in my own sitting room. Oh. But I don't think you've ever stayed at our flat for more than about 36 hours, have you? That's true. So you've broken your own rule. I didn't say that. You implied so it. Where I did certainly you... implied it, but I did not say it. <laughs> so where did you do it? In the kitchen? <laughs> at Martin's computer desk? In your bed. In our wardrobe. Whilst you were sleeping. I think that was Nick Vandercourt's station. Yeah. I'd, I'm happier not knowing with the guests. I sure. figure I don't mind. If, I, I, don't I mind. wouldn't mind you wanking in in our house. But it uh, well, I'll tell you what it is. It's things like because a, a couple of times I shared some linen with your previous guests. You more oh, than a couple. Yeah. You hadn't yeah. changed the so like if I thought <laughs> if I thought that the previous guest had been masturbating into the sheets, that wouldn't be very nice for me. And I, I wanted to return that favour into the I, sheets. What do well, you mean? well, like using them as a they're in the sheets and they're masturbating. Exactly. That's yeah. different though. That's yes, yes. I'm not saying that they deliberately ejaculate into on, the sheets. No, I'm just right, saying that right, some right. of their bodily fluids may have made their you way. You know, onto. of course. I never thought about this, and if I had, I probably would have changed the guest sheets more. <laughs> and you'd never use Airbnb. Oh, you know, we were staying in an Airbnb a few months ago, and during our stay, they changed the bed. Oh yes, that what, what was do you mean? weird. You mean actually changed? She messaged the me like an bed. hour before like it was saying, an iron bed oh, and then they wanted a futon. We're going to come in and we're going to take your bed and leave a, a different bed. Wow, and now that like, service, even a five-star hotel, they just changed the sheets. I was like, couldn't you have waited until we'd left or done it before we arrived? What did they change it from and to? They changed it from a bed into a different bed that was clearly not a new bed because it was chipped and mm. the mattress had clearly been used. 
Do you think the previous Airbnb tenant had been murdered in their sleep? No, I think they probably just got given this bed and they didn't have anywhere to put it, so they're like, we'll get rid of this slightly worse bed. But that doesn't help. They've still got a bed to dispose of. Yeah, it was a load of rubbish. Mm. I wouldn't recommend that. I, I, did, I didn't leave a review on that Airbnb, which shows that. It was also the place where Martin turned a tap on and a spider fell out. <gasps> oh, God, yeah. It was really goffy. <laughs> That's not their fault. Yeah. Really? Well, no water came out. Right. Oh, I see. Just a spider. It was one yeah. spider, not a <laughs> perpetual stream of spiders. It was this house. Otherwise, that... I might have left a negative rating. But this is relevant to people staying at their family's house for Christmas. Yeah. Would you masturbate in your familial home? It's too cold. You couldn't. <laughs> I think the reason why it doesn't particularly bother me that people might have been doing it when they stayed in our spare room is that I wanted them to feel at home mm. and relaxed. And yes. there's just a lot of built-up sexual tension in your house. Between. Always. It's because it's the next church. Just as soon as people walk in, they're just like, oh. Well, maybe they saw my fabric collection. They're like, that's oh, a good that's fabric collection. <laughs> Martin's microphones. Anyway. Look at that big stiff one. Please do send us your questions for next year's Answer Me This. Yes, we will return on the first Thursday of January yes. with your questions. So supply them via email, phone, Skype, voice memos that you have sent via email and all of our contact details are on our website answermethispodcast.com so that is our last new episode for the year but as you know if you subscribe to the show on the podcast feed itself you do receive our little deposit every month of a retro trip through the archives there will still be one of those this year there's another one uh, in a couple of weeks' time. So keep yeah. an eye on your feed for that. And uh, also do listen out for our other audio projects to drown out the sound of other people throughout the festive period. Yes, The Modern Man is my weekly magazine show about sex trends and amazing life stories. Uh, this season we've had cabin crew confessions and a man who survived 36 hours lost at sea. Uh, a lot if, of people at Christmas would be like, I envy that guy. Uh, if you want to hear that, uh, it's modernmanwith2ends.co.uk. 36 hours, there's a Doris Day film where she's been lost at sea for like 12 years yes and she still doesn't have roots growing into her dyed blonde hair when they find her this guy didn't have a boat or any food oh he got attacked by a shark fair enough yeah uh, the illusionist is my podcast about language there are a couple of episodes that are timely actually there's one about what they used to call uh, father christmas and how they send christmas cards with dead mice stapled to the front and there's one <laughs> about the term winterval that 90s festive fuck-up. Yes. Strongly recommend. Okay. It's an interesting story. That's at theallusionist.org. And uh, what's more festive soundtrack to <laughs> than the noises that come out of Martin Norstwick here? Uh, yeah, my band Pale Bird, by band I mean mainly me, uh, has a new album. It's called 10 Things Which Aren't Love. You can get it on Spotify, iTunes, or palebird.bandcamp.com. And if you want to buy us a Christmas present, there's nothing we'd love more than money. You can do that at <laughs> paypal.me slash answer me this. Ho, ho, ho. Thank you very much for joining us this year. Yeah. Yeah, yeah thanks. The show would be nothing without you. Eleven years old. Yeah. Eleven. He's ready for secondary school. Absolutely outrageous. <laughs> See you next year. Bye! Bye.